Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Dennis Schuler, and I'm your moderator of Vendapunk, Inflection Points of Senior Leaders. I'm joined today by Paul Pullman. Paul is the former CEO of Unilever and a senior executive at both Nestle and Procter & Gamble before that, and currently runs his own consulting uh, shop called Imagine. And we'll get to that, obviously, a little bit later in our webcast here. So as I mentioned, Paul had 27 years at Procter & Gamble. This is where I first met him when we were together in the UK in the mid-90s. Um, he had a terrific career at P&G and was Wall Street and CNBC's European Business Fan of the Year. He then left P&G and joined Nestle for three years as CFO and Executive Vice President for the Americas. And he was named CFO of the Year by Investor Magazine while he was in that post. Then he joined Unilever where he was the CEO for 10 years. And he was the first outside CEO ever hired into that role. And he transformed an underperforming organization that could be best described as kind of sleepy into the best consumer products company in the world. Financial Times named him the standout CEO of the decade, which is pretty high praise for his time at Unilever. And as I mentioned, he's now the founder of Imagine, a consulting group devoted to assisting other companies on large scale change as it relates to social responsibility. Um, Paul has a terrific life partner in Kim and three great sons, uh, one of which was my assistant basketball coach years ago, uh, Christian, Philippe and uh, Sebastian. And I couldn't be more delighted to welcome Paul to the, to the webcast. Uh, he's a true friend, a great mentor and a fantastic uh, considerable voice in business in terms of helping companies do good by doing business well. So welcome, welcome to Vendapunk, Paul Pullman, thank you. Um, where I wanted to start was if I could drifting back in time in your early life, the, the forces, the people, the events that shaped you as an individual, because from working with you, working for you and then observing you, you're quite a different uh, executive than the norm. So I'm just curious for our listeners what were the forces, people, events, things that kind of shaped your early thinking about what executives and management's all about? Well, thanks, Dennis, and, and obviously enjoy and was looking forward to the opportunity. The um, I think we're constantly being shaped and, and that makes us who we are and that is an evolving thing. I grew up in 1956 when I was born, uh, just after the World War and the older I get, the more I realize how close that was after World War II. Mm. But you know, I grew up in a family that my parents met in Boy Scouts. Uh, the education was deprived from them. So they did everything to ensure that we would get the education. For My father was exactly between 15 and 20 years old. So he missed high school. Mm. He couldn't go to university. And I think it haunted him uh, the rest of his life. But, but he wanted us to be better. They wanted peace in Europe. They were very active in their communities, in their church, and, and uh, it was all about rebuilding and, and building it back better and not getting into the same uh, situation again. And these are values that were given to us. So I think first and foremost, that's where they came from. And as a first part in my career, I wanted to be a, a priest, I wanted to be a doctor, and then with a little bit of serendipity, I ended up in business. And I think it... Uh, all boils down to the same thing as a desire to uh, help other people and put yourself to the service of others. And then you start your career, uh, you're initially self-centered. 
you want your wife uh, to have some security, you want a roof above your head, all these things. But there comes a time in life and better to have that sooner than later when you realize it's not about yourself and when you're in a position to put yourself to the service of others and and doing that, you know, you're better off yourself as well. And that's a sweet moment to be at. And in my case, I think it was when we both met in Newcastle, I had uh, replaced my clasper to at that time run the uh, business for the UK and Ireland. And Mike was very involved in the community. And this was the first time I saw second generation unemployment. I still remember that going to see him and some of the other places and shipbuilding, steel and coal had gone belly up. And the only thing a, a, a young woman could get was a baby uh, making her situation worse. But that was about their only state, a symbol of I have arrived. And they'd never seen their parents work and all these things. And we were the biggest employer and I was very happy to see us being so active in the community. And, uh, and that's where I felt I became uh, more of a full person than a, than a half person, if you want to. Might have also been the age or the states of life I was in, but I really uh, discovered a different role of business and also a different responsibility in business. Yeah. And then obviously, uh, as it progressed, uh, PNG was a member of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, but nobody felt like flying from Cincinnati to Geneva, where their headquarters were. Uh, we were in Europe, so I was very early on the board of the World Business Council. I participated in the Rio conference, the Rio plus 20. And I, you know, perhaps it was the Boy Scouts, my parents, a respect for ensuring that we live in harmony with planet Earth and fellow citizens, that I got far more interested in, you know, how can we ensure that we have a more sustainable business model, a more equitable business model, a more uh, inclusive business model. Uh, I've always felt myself to be very lucky um, to have had these opportunities to be born in the Netherlands where education was paid for by the government and, and to have a job and be financially independent. So already fairly early on, I felt it is better to put myself to the service of others. And, and that's what I've tried yeah. to do. But I got I to gotta say, when I, was, uh, when I was working for you in Newcastle, I, I was... Um, my brief, incidentally, when I went to Newcastle was, hey, we got this really talented GM coming in, but you know, you need to control him because he's very bold <laughs> in his thinking. And what I was struck by when I first started, when I first met you was, remember we played soccer on the back back 40 and back of the headquarters Thank one you. night with your three boys. And I said, God, this guy's really normal. And then I met your wife, Kim, and we had dinner together. And I said, God, what a normal, affable executive, uh, which I guess is a, is a, is an outgrowth of how you were raised, how you were educated, and your parents. Because uh, I found you to be really, really normal. And I mean that as a great uh, measure of respect, Paul, uh, versus a lot of the executives I'd worked with in the UK, which was the old UK PLC uh, mentality. You were quite different. Well, you know, when my father always said, never forget where you came from. Uh, we expressed that by never forget your house number where you were born. And, uh, you know, I come from a part of the country that we keep both feet on the ground. And, you know, I think I've seen so many CEOs uh, change uh, when they have the power, when they have the money, when they have the comfort around them, mm -hmm. and they start to, uh, you know, end up being different people. It's like the environment defining them. I've always tried to define myself and try to be myself. And I, you know, it's never hurt me. Um, and I've done that my whole career. Uh, 
you know, I take the metro, I do my own shopping, I carry my own bags, and <laughs> and that's why it's also Your been luggage. simple to retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now yeah, I have to do all of that in my retirement. <laughs> so Very it's okay, you know, you have to have to be yourself and to be authentic and to be real and yeah, that's what we were trying to do. And it's you're you're not different than anybody else when you are in a position of power. But some people thrive on this formal power, this authoritative power, whilst um, I've always believed in moral power. And now it's even better that I'm retired and don't have 150 people, 150,000 people and and run a company that is in 190 countries and all the other things. Uh, it's much better, I think, and the influence you can have is much better when you move from a formal authority to a moral authority. And I've always believed that. Yeah. And that's a, that's a nice segue to my second question, Paul, if I might, which is just kind of reflecting on your career. You've had um, you've had an outstanding, awesome career. I mean, you worked at P&G, Nestle, and then Unilever. Could you could you just for each one of those stops, just tell the listeners what you took away um, from each one of those companies in terms of you know how that shaped your agenda as a leader, your strategic choices you made, how you led your organization? Can you reflect on that a bit? Yeah, well, all of them you learn, and it's also again a function of the stages of life or the jobs you have done. But uh, they're all of all three of them are great companies. I always say they're built to last, not built to sell. You know, they are built on great values. You know, PNG 1837, Nestle 1857, uh, Unilever around the same time when Lord Lever started his uh, business and took over the grocery business of his father. So uh, the fact that these companies are still there and they've all had good and bad times. And they've all made mistakes. They've all had to deal with tremendous shocks, uh, you know, COVID being the last one, but they endure. And I think it boils down to these values that are firmly embedded in these companies. And uh, I've always appreciated that. And I've always felt at home in all three of them, uh, to be honest, because um, I felt that these values uh, permeate my own values. So doing the right thing is how you simply say it or ethics or you put different words around it, but it is actually the values and behavior together that decide the culture. And the culture in these companies is has all been uh, very positive compared to the majority of other companies I see out there. Mm -hmm. They're responsible citizens. They're operating multi-stakeholder models. They think long-term. It's not that we always behave that way. I understand that, but that's basically in the DNA of these companies. So I've always felt very much at home. But then there are typical things that come with the location that you're in, that come with the product range that you have. You know, PNG, as we know, is a very disciplined company. It's very rigorous, but I think uh, it's overanalyzing and, and as a result turns leaders into managers to a great extent. And, um, you know, there, there could be, I think, a better people development if there is a little bit of more of a principle-based running of the business instead of a rules-based, if I put it that way. But I like the discipline. I like the rigorness for the positive parts of that. So I don't want to belittle that. Um, and then it's a very centralized uh, model. I've always felt that being in Cincinnati and running the U.S. from there, you, you get a, a, a vision of, of running the business that I don't think reflects the the reality of the world and PNG has struggled with that. And each time they went too centralized, uh, they paid the price for that. So I learned a lot from that. And frankly, I learned more from the mistakes and 
from the people I worked with in that sense than, than anything else. And that's why I've been proud to be there 27 years and don't regret any, any of those years. Uh, then to Nestle, a totally different company, totally decentralized. Swiss, we don't talk about it, we just do. <laughs> Very modest in that sense. People extremely loyal. But um, because it's a food company, very close to people. They're very well developed in the emerging markets. It's much more in the DNA than uh, PNG and, and very much into uh, livelihoods or bottom of the pyramid, if you want to, um, because of their long history there, but also their business model, working with uh, farmers, uh, setting up milk districts, uh, creating livelihoods. Uh, it's a very big part of their business model. And I learned from Peter Brabeck, who is probably one of the best leaders out there and uh, interesting person. That was one of the main reasons I went there in the end. After three years in Nestle, um, I got the opportunity to become the CEO of Unilever, a company that was quite in trouble in those days and had lost a little bit its mojo, became a victim of that same short-termism that we see creeping into other companies when activists come in and, and when, uh, you know, when others take over, so to speak. And uh, we needed to change the business model. And the combination of PNG and Nestle uh, and, and Unileverizing that, if I may call it, finding the uniqueness and all of that for Unilever worked very well. We established our values. We brought discipline to the business. We reconnected again with our long-term multi-stakeholder model. And uh, so taking the best of both, adapting that to Unilever where there was an incredibly strong core but then we went beyond it because it was very clear that business needed to change, that society was changing faster than business itself. So we came with this very bold plan. At the time, it was a little bit unheard of and perhaps thought a little bit of going far, especially for the financial community, but also for the business community, which was this Unilever Sustainable Living Plan to totally decouple your environmental your growth from your environmental impact to maximize your social impact to try to create a net positive business model to take responsibility of your total footprint and even that i unfortunately haven't seen other companies do yet to that extent uh, even uh, png if i may say or nestle uh, although these companies have stepped up because the realities of the world are asking for it consumers are asking for it increasingly the financial market some governments but i think you need to be proactive it's so clear what is happening and it's so clear what our role in that is and we should strive to be what i call these net positive companies yeah and if i can just jump in one of the things that was super impressed with you is um you were the first outside hire into the top executive role at unilever so that was it was a, a large change effort and you know when public people come in from the outside Sometimes it could be therapeutic for the organization. Sometimes you can get rejected because you're not homegrown. How did you navigate that? Because you, again, I, I think Financial Times at the end of your 10 years uh, designated you as the standout CEO of the decade, which is high praise by FT to begin with, but also was, was emblematic of the work you were able to do. So how did you navigate that large scale change as an outsider coming in from, you know, a, not directly from PNG, but a staunch competitor over the years. You, you realize the PNG Unilever connection <laughs> and the, and the well, wars and all that of the past. How'd you navigate all that? 
It's interesting that they uh, called me the standout CEO of the decade because they weren't very kind in the beginning. That paper was very much by, for Milton Friedman shareholder primacy. Yeah. They've come around for a big, to a big extent to give them credit, but still uh, it was a surprise to me. And then uh, others started calling me Captain Planet and other things. I got a little bit of um, practice at Nestle because I was also the first one coming in at board level true. in Nestle from the outside. And um, what, what I learned was is a little bit of humanity and humility. Um, when I came to Unilever, I understood that I had to gain the respect of others, not the other way around. Um, um, I also understood that some people who had fiercely competed with the PNGs or the Nestle's in my case, might have thought that the Trojan horse came in. Uh, somehow a little bit of a, a sad feeling among some that an outsider had to come in to rescue the company. Yeah. Normally when an outsider comes in, it is because the company is in real trouble or needs a major change and talent development fell short. And I remember one of the first dinners with um, some of my predecessors where at the end of the dinner, one of them said, Mr. Pullman, you're really a, a nice bloke. I really enjoyed the dinner, but you don't belong here. And I went home and I, I said to myself, wow, that hurts, you know, mm. it really stuck to me. And it made me more resilient to this proof that, um, you know, that it's not about killing your competitors or it's not about putting judgments on people, but that we have to judge people by who they are and what they do. And I took a page out of the book of Jim Collins. If you remember from good to great, yes. he talks about nurturing the core before you stimulate progress. So I saw that the company had lost its mojo, its core, if you want to. So I studied a little bit, read terribly boring books about the history of the company, the values, Lord Lever itself. And I started storytelling. And the first meeting I had actually with my management team was in Port Sunlight in the home that Lord Lever was born. And people didn't understand why we would go to Port Sunlight because it's out of the, out of the way, why we would be in this house. But I wanted to make that symbolic, like this is, we're going back to the values and the roots of the company. And interestingly, if you look at the brands he created, like Lifeboy, it's called Lifeboy. You know, it was purely designed to attack the issues of Victorian Britain when one out of two babies because of hygiene problems didn't make it past year one either. These were purpose-driven brands. He talked in his business model about shared prosperity. He built the housing and poured sunlight, the fillets for his employees before the factory was fully running. You know, he had the highest number of volunteers in World War I because he guaranteed their jobs back and kept paying their wages. He introduced pensions in the UK. When he took uh, a seat in the House of Lords, he took the name of his wife. Nobody's ever done that after him. Huh. So this guy was a, a special person. And the more I studied him, uh, the more I understood what the essence was of the company he had created and the values that made it great, but also where we had lost it. And by going back to these roots, by recreating these values in today's environment, I think we gained a lot of respect. And then I took this phobia for Nestle or PNG out of the system and really created something unique for Unilever that Unilever could be proud of. I learned something from Peter Barbeck with our training program <clears throat> that I started with was Bill George to bring purpose to the company. You have to start with your personal purpose, your own crucibles. And but we call that the Unilever Leadership Development Program. Uh, we didn't call it the um, uh, sustainable living plan. We called it the Unilever sustainable living plan. So in everything, I tried to bring this uniqueness in. 
and slowly uh, restore, uh, let's say, this pride or this sense of belonging. And, uh, and that, I think, has been instrumental. We saw the pride going up. We saw the engagements going up. And um, we became the, uh, the most desired employer brand in most countries, the third most looked up company on LinkedIn after Apple and Google. So it created a sort of a wave that was quite uh, remarkable. It actually surprised me myself as well. I remember when I visited you in London a few years ago, you told me that, um, I can't remember the data, like you, you were hiring 800 people a year, I think in the UK, and you were getting close to a million applicants. And I said, God, <clears throat> Paul, that's a lot of rejection letters. And you go, no, 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 we never reject people. We invite them to be part of the sustainable living plan, <clears throat> the social uh, responsibility agenda, which I thought was incredibly thoughtful. Can you go up, can you go a bit more, you know, what I see with companies when they get into social responsibility, it's like everybody else is doing it, so we better do it. So the first thing to do is they appoint a senior executive for quote, social responsibility, and it goes nowhere. You took a completely different tact and you drove it through the heart of the brand. So what the brand stood for, just tell the listeners a little bit about that thinking and how that actually manifested itself uh, to the consumer. And then obviously that haloed your, your company and it created yeah. uh, much more of a passion for the business at the troop level. But tell me about your thinking getting started there on that. Well, I've always felt that to be really successful, you need to integrate it into the heart of the business. In fact, it has to become your strategy. Many companies are still in, in the CSR mode at best. Yeah. Uh, not bad in itself, but CSR is about less bad. It's about one part of the company's operations. It's often scope one or two, which is in your own control, but it abdicates responsibility for the value chain or the global footprint that you have globally. So I started from the premise that we need to take responsibility of our total uh, impact that we have in the world. I felt that was a very important thing. If you're in the food business and there is deforestation in the food supply chain or human rights issues or obesity or stunting, you have to have a not only an opinion about that, you have to do something about do it something. Yeah. and uh, and take take co at least co-responsibility. You don't have to take it all on your shoulders. Um, so I've always felt that uh, to be genuine and to be successful, you have to put it at the heart of your operations. And if you do that, it actually becomes an engine for growth. If you only see bar soaps as hand washing, you have a far limited, more limited view than if you see bar soap as trying to help a child reach the age of five by getting rid of infectious diseases like pneumonia diarrhea over four million children below the age of five die every year if you see a domestic a toilet bowl cleaner just as a toilet bowl cleaner you'll probably stay focused on the functional benefits and try to slightly improve on that but if you see the brand as a weapon to um, fight open defecation and set a goal to build 100 million toilets you start seeing different things. Mm -hmm. uh, Dove is a wonderful brand. You call it skin cream and you start competing with anybody else on my skin cream is a little better or a little smoother or it smells better. But think about women's self-esteem when only 5% of women in the world feel happy in the bodies that they're in. So you create this broader purpose that are societal issues that need to be addressed. And you put yourself firmly at the intersection of this transformative change that needs to happen actually beyond your own company. And, and then you need to do it in a very responsible way, which includes not only optimizing your financial capital, which I think is important. You need to have a, a cash flow to keep your company alive, 
but it is far more important to do that in a way that also optimizes your social capital, your employees being the most important ones, but many more in the value chain and your environmental capital. So we were one of the first companies, for example, that internalized the, um, the um, uh, human rights principles, the UN, a rocky framework, as it was called, about uh, rights, skills, opportunities. And uh, we issued two human rights reports. We issued a modern day slavery report on slavery and the value chain. And, um, and what we were doing about that, the good things, the bad things, the challenges. But I've seen very few companies follow. We put our tax principles on our website. We went out of uh, tax manipulation to, you know, to optimize your tax rate, but not contribute to society. So we did, we did things that other companies perhaps find a little bit um, far, but anytime we did it, we found that it actually strengthened our business. Yeah. that it uh, built trust, that it created partnerships, that we got this engagement, that we had better relationships with our suppliers. And we're still building on that now during COVID, which was a good test, where we have seen if there's one learning from COVID, there are many learnings, but one learning has been that companies that have operated under ESG, multi-stakeholder longer term, seem to be doing better. Also in the financial market, the funds mm -hmm. that are in that direction. So. We might have been a little bit early because the challenge I had was there wasn't much proof and there weren't many data available and the financial market hadn't caught on yet. And it was easier to, to play the shareholder primacy short-term game for many of those. Yeah. So there were cynics about around and there were skeptics around also because Unilever didn't have a good track record. But over the 10 years, we grew every year top line, every year bottom line. We had a 300% shareholder return. So I think the numbers at the end helped. If these numbers would not have been there, I might have been in trouble a little earlier. But uh, yeah. this way, I, I could yeah. uh, do this for ten years and go out on my own terms. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of trouble, not not you personally, but you fended off the big three G guys who came knocking on the door and took a, took a lot of heat for that. But on retrospect, when you see what has happened to Kraft and Heinz restating their books. A lot of the stuff that was under the under the waterline that now surfaced, you were absolutely right. Just tell me a little bit about that story. What was happening within, within your company at the time? Well, you're obviously right with the benefit of hindsight, which I didn't have at that moment. But the benefit of hindsight, their share price is down 50, 60 percent. Warren Buffett took the biggest write down. Uh, indeed, book manipulation. I think they've had three or four CEOs. Um, their business continues to go on. You know, uh, whilst Unilever's share price actually up 60% since then, uh, continuing to grow and, and obviously having a bigger impact. It really boils down to what business model you prefer. Both of them are legal, by the way. Mm. But do you prefer a model that is built on only creating value or also a business model that has values as a way to do this? I think values and value is a better combination. Do you want a business model that only caters to a few billionaires? that then build the Harvard Ethics Institute because they've earned so much money? Or do you want to work for a company that tries to cater for the billions of people? Um, you know, so as I look at these two models, it was very clear that, uh, first of all, strategically it didn't make any sense. You know, when you sell plastic cheese or uh, ketchup in a bottle with uh, a quarter of that is sugar, I don't think those are, you know, the 
the healthy meals of the future and, and the market has changed rapidly. So I think in that respect, we've sort of uh, called that right. But also when you see these cultures being so opposite, one nearly a mercenary culture where uh, it's all about money, even for yourself. And, you know, the very few people that we've seen coming in from Kraft Heinz, coming into Unilever that, that really could do well because they were too far apart in values. And even Unilever people that went to Kraft Heinz, very few, they didn't hang around either. So strategically, it wasn't the right thing for shareholders, but it also bothered me that, that these are the business models that we let succeed whilst, um, you know, whilst we uh, have so many issues in society. I've never seen them participate in, in fighting deforestation. They are on the lowest on the ranking on human rights. And, you know, they're not in any trade association to do something bigger than themselves. And I found that a very shallow and limited way of living our lives and a very shallow way of running a company. Unfortunately, that uh, was possible, uh, increasingly less so, I believe. Consumers have caught on, financial market caught on. You see more legislation and frameworks. And you also see that you don't get away by hollow statements and promises. You're increasingly being held accountable to real delivery. But I wanted to draw out this uh, fight that we have between you know, what type of capitalism do we really want in this world? And uh, what sort of businesses do we need to keep around? And, you know, unfortunately, the number of publicly traded companies in the US in the last four decades has gone down from over 8,000 to 4,000. The average length of a life of a company has come down from 67 years when I was born to less than 17 years now. The average tenure of a CEO is now less than four and a half years. Yeah, right. So you really have to ask yourself the question, you know, do we run these companies well? If you see the airline industry, 10 trillion in, or, or buybacks in the US in the last 10 years, over 10 trillion. The airline industry, more share buybacks than investing in R&D. And then you, then you have a debate on why Boeing got into trouble. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take too much rocket science to figure that out. So we need to go back to sanity. And that's what I've always advocated. Well, that, that's, uh, that, that leads me to another question. Um, because I know you're doing uh, consulting now with uh, with a lot of entities, and I'm just curious, how do you uh, how do you get CEOs to find their voice in this area? Because again, you you what it sounds like me and from working with you and knowing you over the years, you, this this sense of doing business a different way was imbued in you early, and, and it manifested about how you led both P and G and Nestle and Unilever. C CEOs struggle with this. Um, they may be lack courage, they may lack understanding, but how do you get them over the, over the transom and get their voice on this? Because it's such an important aspect of doing business in the future. What have you found helpful? So the good thing is that society is expecting it. 86% of employees, according to Edelman, expect their CEOs to speak out on social issues. The George Fries have, and, and et cetera, the uh, elections and money and politics in the US. I just wrote an article in Harvard Business Review about that, but it has all brought this role of, of the CEO into a different uh, uh, limelight. Uh, the issues that the CEOs need to tackle are also increasingly bigger that they cannot do it alone. So they need to start working in partnerships and, and develop those skills. So I think we're on a trend and actually we're seeing quite a lot of CEOs stepping up now, but how do you do that holistically is, uh, is your point. 
the reality is that Dennis is that no CEO wants more unemployment, more air pollution, more people going to bed hungry. And yet collectively, we don't behave like that. Yeah. Collectively, we, uh, we, we, we know that what we are doing isn't right, interestingly. And it is because we operate within our system. We play it safe. We, we often make the plans to play not to lose versus playing to win. So it's very difficult to get out of that comfort zone. That's why you need a strong purpose. That's why you need to invest in leaders because they are, that's the best chance you have to be bold and brave, to be more courageous. If you are strongly purpose-driven at your core, you have not only a clear direction where you want to go in a very uncertain world, but you're also more determined to get there. And you're also more likely setting bigger goals. Unilever right away, one of the first companies that set net zero goals on carbon emission, zero waste on, on plants, living wages for people in the value chain. So these are absolute goals that, that come from a conviction of what is the right way to do business and, and that is anchored in that strong purpose. And then the leadership obviously needs to be developed. Uh, we are short of leaders, there's no question about it. But collectively our behavior is influenced by the boundaries in which we operate. If you run a company and you reward your salespeople for the number of orders they write, they're going to write a lot of orders, but they will be very small. If you reward your leadership or your salespeople for customer service, they're going to behave differently and you'll have very good relationships with your customers, but you might not make any money. So the, the, the um, boundaries that we put around people decide their behavior. And the reason that we don't see more CEOs stepping up is that it's very difficult for them individually in their companies to change these boundaries. Alone, they cannot change the accounting system. Alone, they cannot solve the plastic issues in the ocean or moving to regenerative agriculture. So what we've done with Imagine, which is a foundation I created after Unilever, is where we, our theory of change is, is that uh, we're going in the right direction, but the speed and scale is missing. Our theory of change also assumes that multilateralism and governments will have it difficult, at least for the coming decade. And you see signs of that all over. So we believe firmly that private sector needs to step up. And if you bring together a uh, by, by sector, about 20% of a value chain at CEO level, value chain CEO level by sector, you can actually create tipping points. So um, we create this neutral platform where these CEOs come together we see them becoming more courageous because they are to sharing the best practices, moving things to pre-competitive. And because you have your whole value chain there, you can solve it. Once you have critical mass, you attract other companies who want to join, fear of losing out. Yep. You attract innovations that you need. Uh, civil society wants to work with you. Government starts to listen. A very simple example in two sentences to make that come alive. We have pulled together the 30 biggest food companies in Europe, we haven't moved quite fast, as fast as we wanted to on food labeling, the same in the US. And each company will go to Brussels and have their own story on food labeling. And that's fairly confusing because we slightly, we all look at it from a slightly different way. Now you have the 30 companies together that are working with Franz Timmermans and the European Union on putting one food labeling in place. The credibility, because they're the most progressive or forward thinking companies and you do it in block. The same would be true with regenerative farming, agriculture. You need to create global standards. And uh, 
or getting out of single-use plastics or moving to regenerative cotton in fashion. These are the things that we are working. Um, we call them pre-competitive. Uh, and, and I've always said, you don't compete on the future of humanity. One of the first things I did when I went to Unilever, having come from Nestle, I looked at the ice cream cabinets and uh, I haven't met any person who buys ice creams or beverages based on the engine that is in those cabinets to keep the product cool. But the reality is all these engines at that time were CFC or HFC. It's cost about 3% of the global warming. Mm -hmm. So that's a pre-competitive space for me. So I put uh, Muta Kent at that time, Indra Nui, uh, Paul Bulker, myself in one room. And we said, let's create a natural uh, refrigerant. It required the governments to get involved. Uh, Lisa Jackson at that time was in the EPA. They needed to change some legislation in the US because the HFC CFC lobby was very strong. So we did all that, all of that. We ended up with a cheaper engine using less energy, better for the retailers where all these machines are, and actually no um, CO2 emission. Now that's the type of thing that courageous leaders can do together. It's safe space. Many of them give you immediate benefits to the bottom line and some others you don't want to do because you feel confident that if you do it collectively, you're not at a disadvantage. Yeah, um, <clears throat> doing good by doing business well, I guess I think is the headline in that. Paul, a couple last questions. I want to respect your time. I, I booked 45 minutes with you and I want to make sure I, I respect you, particularly since you're in your evening in the Netherlands. But just talk to me a little bit about diversity, equality and inclusion. What role is that play? in the social agenda well, for me that's very important and it's not because of the flavor of the months or where the wind is blowing from you know i i, I it's to me it goes back to the basic human values to make humanity function if we don't fight for values like dignity and respect equity uh and inclusion uh compassion um the world will not function there were very few people that spoke out at charlottesville at that time when the former president was making some outrageous statements. Yeah. There were very few people in the beginning who spoke up for the rights of LGBT when they were violated. In fact, we discovered with the tragic death of George Floyd that we had fully, fully forgotten the racial dimension and still have an enormous mountain to climb. So anytime you violate that or pull that back, um, which is happening in many places in the world, you actually um, uh, put humanity at risk. So living in harmony with fellow human beings and the planet requires to have that respect. So I don't think, as I've learned, I was very early on already actively involved in diversity, as you know, and Unilever had a fully gender diverse board. And internally, we, we went from 38% to 50% fully gender balanced over these 10 years. Um, but we also had the racial dimension on the board, people from Africa to Chinese, you know, from all parts of the world. So I think we did our best, but I regret that I still saw gender as the dominant, dominant issue. Um, we went far on gender. We took that to the whole value chain. You know, all of our farmers that we worked with, we were training 5 million farmers. We wanted half to be women. On the tea plantations in these countries, half of the supervisors women. Um, so we, we had a gender lens through all what we did, and that was important. Mm -hmm. But I missed the um, racial part as much as anybody else, but also the disability part. There are 1.3 billion people 
with disability. 85% uh, is happening actually in the ages between 18 and 65. It can happen to all of us. That's 15% of the world population, but no company has 15% of people with disabilities. So we started something called Valuable 500. We now have 420 companies signed up of the biggest companies to make a commitment to take more people with disabilities in their companies. And actually the companies would be so much better for it, as you can imagine. So for me, it's a question of total inclusion. That's why I fight for, once again, um, gender, disability, or LGBT with the same intensity. And what you see is that issues like climate change, for example, that we're now dealing with, always disproportionately affect minorities, women and girls, people with disabilities, <laughs> you know, yeah. the racial minorities. So Indeed. that's why the Sustainable Development Goals, which I had the pleasure of helping develop, the 17 goals that the UN put out in 2015 are so important because they give you an integral framework to look at that and to bring it into your business. And because it isn't easy for a lot of the CEOs, but we're at the point right now that the cost of not acting is higher than the cost of acting, which also means that the CEOs that can internalize these SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, can see enormous opportunities to drive their business. I created a commission which was called the Business and Sustainable Development Commission, with a goal to get to about a thousand CEOs and convince them to put the Sustainable Development Goals at the heart of their business and also report on it in their annual reports. And we just looked at four areas, food and land use, health and well-being, cities and energy transition. And we found already in these four areas an opportunity that was at least $12 trillion between now and 2030 and it would create 380 million more jobs. Well, we need both. We now need to stimulate our economies again, and we need to create more jobs to, to get our social cohesion. So uh, these are tremendous opportunities that we have right in front of us that we now need to pick up and run with, to be honest. Yeah, and Paul, just, just speaking uh, about opportunities for a minute, I know um, you do a lot of work with young professionals. You've spoke, spoken at their conference consistently. And as you think about the changes coming that, that industry and society need to be about, what advice do you have for younger emerging uh, managers in terms of developing themselves for today and tomorrow's world? Yeah, well, I'm very fortunate to share chair uh, One Young World, for example, an incredible movement. We're working with the YPOs, Nexus, Global Shapers. I very much believe to put these youth networks together to connect them. I'm uh, the chairman of the side business school and involved in some other universities, exactly also there to change the face of management education. And uh, interestingly, 50% of the world population is now below 30 years and uh, 30 years old, and it's going to be 100% tomorrow. And it is important that in everything we do, we involve the young. Uh, some people say, give them a seat at the table. I believe you have to give them the table. They're more creative. They are more purpose-driven. They think intergenerational. They uh, understand technology. And, you know, it's just tremendous, tremendous ideas. And many of the changes, not only the greater Thornburns, but many of the changes that we now see in society, frankly, are driven by the younger people. My advice for them is very simple. is um, try to find the, the sweet spot between what you're good at, um, uh, what society needs, and what you enjoy 
And if you can operate your life within that, it is, um, you know, you will be very successful. You'll be able to live your purpose with passion uh, and, um, and find what you want. And through all of this, I would say, keep your positive attitude. The road to change is not easy. Otherwise, someone else would have done it before you. Amen to um, that. So you can be an optimist or a pessimist is your choice. But if you choose to be an optimist, at least you have a happier life. So go for that as a minimum. And Paul, my last question for you is, what's life like for you? It sounds like you're super busy, but uh, did you go any get, go, get any of these withdrawal pains that a lot of CEOs uh, tell me about in terms of, boy, they're moving from this 365 24 seven, always moving to, you know, a post, uh, you know, full-time role as CEO. Have you experienced any of those withdrawal pains where it sounds like you're pretty full with activities and things that drive your interest and passion? Well, I'm fortunate that uh, it might be still the 365 24 seven you're referring to, but it is totally dedicated to things I have passion for and that the world needs right now. And I found in Unilever, I stayed for 10 years because I used the last five years, I used the size and scale of Unilever to try to drive uh, transformative change. But I saw some limitations in doing that. And once more, that's why I created the uh, Imagine to move from this formal authority to this moral authority. And I find that the impact we can have by bringing these industry coalitions together, just to name, uh, name an example, is actually far bigger now than what I could have when I was a CEO. Um, but um, the transition has been easy because as I worked in Unilever, these more transformative changes, I, I might have been a little bit unusual as a CEO, but I was very much as much outside of Unilever. I always felt that Unilever benefited from that. Uh, I think it did, but uh, it also gave me a network that was easy to extend myself in. I've always operated under the intersection of civil society, private uh, sector, and governments, and I feel very at ease there. Hey, Paul, thanks a lot. I do want to respect your time. Um, I know you're a busy, busy guy. You're probably more busy than you were as CEO of Unilever. But I just want to thank you for your wisdom, your thoughts, and uh, most of all, your courage um, at showing other executives the way to make an impact by running great businesses, but businesses that actually have an eye towards what they can do to impact society in a positive way. So I really do appreciate that. I know our listeners and viewers around the world will take heart in your, your key messages. So with that, I look forward to seeing you someday across the pond, either in London or Geneva, as soon as this vaccine gets in my arm. And until then, I wish you all the best and uh, safe travels and enjoy the time with your mother in the Netherlands. Thank you, Paul. I plan to do these uh, every two to three weeks. Um, so stay tuned for future attractions. Enjoy uh, Paul's message and see you down the road. Thank you very much for tuning in today.